0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Felix jimenez Bota. and today we have uh, Professor Kevin O'Sullivan uh, as our guest. uh, Professor O'Sullivan is a lecturer in the Department of History and Philosophy at the University of Galway in Ireland. He completed his PhD at Trinity College. Uh, and has been a visiting fellow at the European University Institute in Florence and Carleton University in Ottawa. He's an accomplished scholar of humanitarianism, aid, development, human rights, and global history. His first book, Ireland, Africa, and the End of Empire, Small State Identity in the Cold War, 1955-1975, was published in 2012, and he's also the author of several articles. and journals such as the European Review of History and the Journal of Social History. His latest book, The NGO Moment, just out with Cambridge University Press, is our subject today. Professor Sullivan, Kevin, uh, thank you so much uh, for being with us today.
1: Thanks a bit for inviting me.
0: This book is, is a history of, of Irish, British and Canadian NGOs and their engagement with the Third World in the 1960s and 80s, and you start your your acknowledgments with a fascinating conversation that you had with an Angolan man uh, that that prompted you to to write this book. Um, could you could you expand a bit uh, a bit more on on this for our listeners? How did you come to to this topic? Um, why Ireland, Britain, and Canada?
1: That's a great question to start, Felix. I mean, yeah, I had to start the book with that moment. I mean, you know, so I grew up in Ireland, obviously, in in the 1980s and 1990s, when, you know, we, well, the people, everybody probably knows around the world, we had Bono, Bob Geldof, Mary Robinson. We've had a long tradition of Christian missionaries and humanitarian NGOs working in uh, in the global south. Um, And we were always kind of, Told to be very proud of that, and which I'm, you know, many of the interventions are very, very positive. But in 2007, a friend of mine, Patter King, asked me to, to did I have an idea for a television program? It's a series he makes for Irish state television on um, globalization in the global south and its impacts. And, And I said, well, we should really go to Angola and we should look at, you know, the post civil war period see what uh, nature of the Chinese intervention in the oil industry is there. So that's how I ended up in Luanda in, in December 2000, 2007. And I was sitting at breakfast, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a, I was staying in a Catholic guest house, partly because uh, Luanda at that point, you couldn't get a hotel for about a year and a half because it was so expensive uh, as well. So I was sitting in this really nice Catholic guest house, uh, kind of a communal breakfast table. And, and I was chatting to this guy beside me who was, you know, I'd say maybe in his 70s. Maybe a little older, and he, I was just explaining to him why I was there, and and he said to me, you know, oh, you Americans are all the same, uh, and I said, well, no, no, I I'm actually Irish, you know, to which he said, that doesn't matter to me. It's it's just another inter- intervention from the West coming here, and a very kind of extractive visit, you know, to to just take the information and leave, you know, um, and that really just it stuck with me, Felix. I mean, I was near the end of my PhD at that point. I wrote a book about, uh, as you mentioned, about how Ireland's um, identity was largely shaped on an international stage, at least by it, by decolonization and particularly by the decolonization of Africa. But that that instant just really stuck with me because it just made me really question fundamentally those norms that we've been told to believe in and the kind of patterns and the nature of Irish intervention. I mean, I'd already started to do that with, with the PhD and, and the first book. But it was something about the idea that non-state actors as well and were problematic um, uh, that I just wanted to get under under the skin of it a little bit and just to see what, what does that look like. And so that was one route into it. I mean, that's a very personal route into it was just this kind of challenge my own notions. The second thing was just, I think we had a, it comes partly from the sector itself, but also just from the way that the histories had been written, that there was a very kind of bottom-up history. The NGOs emerged in this period, you know, they, they became this kind of uh, dominant kind of conduit between the West and and I, I call it the third world in the book because that's, you know, the, the name that was used at the time. Um, but I kind of felt that that was just a little bit too easy, <laughs> that it that it wasn't really I, I felt that as I kind of started to scratch into it and the things I'd done for the first book, when I'd really looked into the Biafran crisis, it it seemed to me that the idea that it was just a popular movement was slightly problematic. So I started a project to, to try and um, just to try and see, okay, well, when did this happen? And why did it happen? Why do we have the humanitarian, or as I call it, call it the broader kind of compassion sector that we have now? So the book kind of encompasses human rights, kind of global justice, fair trade, um, and development as well as emergency relief. Um, and then I thought, well, how do I actually frame this? How do I tell this story? And and first of all, it was it became clear to me the more I researched that actually that crucial moment was between the Biafran crisis in the late 1960s um, when you know the decolonization had kind of opened up opportunities for outsiders to intervene in different ways uh, in the third world and then the mid-1980s with live aid uh, and you know this ginormous fundraising extravaganza which just pushed NGOs in a different direction and pushed aid in a different direction and then I thought okay how do I tell this story and there's been lots written about France because MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, you know, ha, have been very well researched, still lots to do actually on them. But, you know, we, we know a lot about how they function. Um, same kind of I felt with the American actors, we, we do know quite a bit about voluntary aid from, from their perspective. Less so I felt when I started the book um, about kind of some of the anglophone countries who were were very interventionist and whose ngos have been very prominent uh, in in that period and so i decided okay well if we if i take ireland which i'm very familiar with britain as a kind of a counterpoint you know as a you know ireland very much framed itself as an anti-colonial and and you know we have this experience therefore this is i mean that's a highly problematic way of thinking about it but that's the way it was framed the british you have this you know attempt to kind of construct itself as a post-imperial power, NGOs as a a different way of intervening in in the global south. Although to me, the continuities, as I've outlined in the book, are very evident. And then I thought, okay, well, what is the balance between those two? And I came to Canada, which I think kind of wants to be this kind of global helpmate but has also got, you know, lots of issues within its own borders, you know, with, with colonialism, and has, you know, has its own roots in empire. So it, it just became a nice kind of uh, triangle to kind of test out some ideas that I felt might be common across uh, across kind of a number of Western contexts. Now, granted individually that their stories i hope come out in the book because you know as i dug into it further the context mattered the local context matters at different points and different connections that those countries and their ngos had with the with the global south mattered and then i thought actually to balance that out so i've tried to to see the book as a as a as a multi-layered story so i i went into government archives as well in all those countries and i also looked at at international organizations the world bank uh, the eu uh, and uh, the oecd um, just to make sure that I would kind of get uh, the different layers of action and, and to, to to see how those threads kind of and how those globalizing kind of ideas moved between a very kind of local um, community base right the way up to, to the international diplomacy level. So that was a very long answer to to your question, uh, Felix. But there's a kind of a personal and there's, a, and there's an academic thing. I think the personal was the thing that sowed the seed for me. But then once I kind of started to dig into it academically, it, it became this big question for me that I wanted to answer.
0: Yeah, and and all these aspects that you mentioned are really uh, the big strength and the innovation of, of this book, that, that you, you really look at the different layers in civil society and government, and you have that nice transatlantic uh, dimension that you can compare very well between what is going on british isles in ireland and, and in canada which i found really 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 fascinating um but we'll we'll talk some more of course about that um i guess as a follow-up question uh, right. could, you, could you introduce for our listeners some of the in, the main ngos that that you're that you deal with Just briefly and name some of the specifics uh, about them
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, there's a there's such a wide array of actors, <laughs> and actually, one one of the things that fascinated me, and I and I was trying to bring out the book is, I mean, I called them an NGO movement because of this broad spectrum of action that they actually do. And so, what I what I tried to do in, in each case was to was to take the NGOs um, that would kind of represent that broad spectrum of action. I, I looked at the major NGOs in each in each case. Um, so in Ireland, that's Trocra, which is the official aid agency of the Irish Catholic Church, and which very much kind of leans on kind of uh, Catholic social teaching from the 70s. So it's it's quite left-leaning. Um, and Concern, which is much more of a kind of an emergency aid-based organisation. And then two of the more the smaller NGOs, Goethe, which is mainly about agricultural development and, and goal, but it doesn't really appear in the book because it's a much, much smaller scale NGO. Mm-hmm. In Britain, um, I looked at Oxfam which is obviously you know one of the biggest NGOs in the world um and in this period is when it really becomes that actually and that was quite, quite interesting the story uh, and I and I was very lucky actually because Oxfam's archives opened just after I started research for the book so I was able to get in there quite early Um, save the children as well another um very uh, established NGO um and looking at them because they are much much more of the British establishment, if you like, you know, and they have this much longer tradition founded in in the aftermath of the First World War. And then War mm. and Want was the other main uh, organisation on the left, born from the British Labour movement, um, very much uh, kind of radical organisation, the 70s uh, leaning to the left. And Christian Aid was the fourth one. Um, Christian Aid is a, is the official aid agency of the British Protestant churches. So again, kind of leaning towards a a, a shift in the uh, in protestant teaching um from the world council of churches in the in the 70s it kind of takes on this uh, left leaning uh, ideas then i looked at canada as well um and i was trying to get the same balance across those uh, different organizations um and i looked at oxfam canada which which is is linked to to oxfam uk um as part of that kind of oxfam international network but radically different in its makeup in the in the 70s it changes very much goes towards the left and so that became a really interesting case study of, of how an ngo evolves um, i looked at uh the what's known as the ccic which is the canadian committee for international cooperation which is a, an umbrella organization but which kind of captures a lot of the the conversations that were going on there and um, save the children canada um, and a little bit of QSO, which is uh, the the, vol- the volunteer uh, sending uh, Canadian university services overseas, um, and so it's trying to get that broad spectrum. Actually, Felix was to try and get a sense of all of these different types of organisations, um, and put them into the book to try and get a sense as well of why were people supporting different organisations, and and what kind of organisations did they tend to to. Um, Moved towards, or were they drawn towards? So that's why it sounds like a lot of names and a lot of different actors and a lot of characters. But it was my only way to get to that broad story. I think.
0: Yeah, but it really, your answer, I think, really shows the breadth of, of the research, and and it really what makes this book so, anyways, representative uh, of all this. Those these NGOs. Um, okay. Uh, well, moving on. Could you walk us through the? three central claims that that you are making in this book. And, and how do you see yourself fitting in the historiography of human rights, perhaps? Uh, because the book is published by, uh, in the, the human rights uh, series, uh, which is edited by by uh, Stefan Lovish Hoffman and, and Sam Moyn. Uh, and perhaps uh, tell us which, which books are you, primarily in conversation with here which scholars are you responding
1: to? yeah this this has been a brilliant series i mean i'm so delighted that it's that it's come in and, and there's been there's been such a kind of uh, the, the series has been terrific i think in in taking a very broad view of of human rights or kind of those topics um you know and and just to be you know there's, there there's such a a broad range, and that's why I kind of felt my book would feel at home in it, because it, you know you've got lots of different kind of texts dealing with different elements of the same of, of very similar stories, which which kind of cross over. I mean, I I made three claims in the book, um, as you as you mentioned. The first was that this is a moment of acceleration. So this idea that we have, uh, I mean, I was. <laughs> Let me, let me just backtrack a little bit, Felix. Actually, because when I say moment of acceleration, what I was looking for was to explain why did this moment mark the emergence of an NGO sector in the way that we understand it now. But also, I was a little—I'm always very uncomfortable with the idea of turning points or of dramatic changes. So I worked with uh, colleague Matthew Hilton a few years ago on an article, and we 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 were trying to figure out a way to kind of describe. The longer history of of humanitarianism since the 19th century. And one of the ideas that that we came up with in that was this idea that acceleration allows you to explain moments when things change or quicken up pace, but they don't necessarily leave all their baggage behind. So in my case, that was a, a way of trying to explain how a new sector or a much broader sector emerged that retain some of the characteristics of, of what it had been before such as the legacies of imperialism its paternalism remains a lot of its attitudes towards kind of different um different kind of ideas of Western intervention in in the global south remain um, and this, You know, this, I I think, was was my way of trying to frame that. And so each of the case studies which I go through in the book, uh, in in the eight chapters, is an attempt to just kind of articulate that and to show you how those older patterns were reframed or rephrased in in different ways but also kind of expanded and and so you get that kind of you know it's it's trying to describe something you know it's it's not all that it's it's not all that you left behind there's there's lots of things which they carry with it and that's in personnel and practices etc and the second thing really is that this is yep
0: so sorry so, so perhaps pushing back against this idea that somehow the 1970s are a sharp break with the past which is uh, the argument of this the classic argument of, of Moyne's twenty ten La Las utopia perhaps, you know.
1: Yeah, I think I think I mean I, I would have a lot of sympathy for that argument in the in the sense of you know that there there is a um a a very visible kind of um expansion in the in the language of of where and how human rights is used. And and I, I mean I talk in, in the chapter about El Salvador you know how humanitarian agencies adopt it for very particular reasons and in in particular contexts, um. But I I'm always uh, just uncomfortable about the idea that there is no that this is without precedent, and I think you know Moyn talks about the forties, you know, and you know, but that that legacy and and um Stephen Jensen as well has talked about the sixties as being a very important moment uh, in in this in this context too, um. And I, I think I would kind of just see that it's it's why I like the idea of acceleration, you see, Felix, because what you're getting is a quickening up of certain patterns that you've seen. And I think that's maybe what Moine is also hinting at, is that these things were pre-existing. But in this moment, they, they expanded. You know, more people took on certain types of language, certain forms of intervention. Um, But they, the thing that I'm quite keen on getting across is that, for example they're almost the same people in a lot of cases that end up kind of transitioning from one to the other you do get new entrants for example post 1968 a lot of people who were radicalized in from the new left from catholic or broader christian social teaching move into ngos but you also get missionaries retraining you get uh, ex-colonial officials retraining so that's where i think acceleration makes a lot more sense to me because it it can be the exact same people you know working alongside new entrants to the sector so that that's kind of where i would see my uh, contribution is just to describe how that's happening and it's the same in the field of development as well in human rights and and in uh, emergency relief i think it's across all of them um, that this that this happens and so i think the 70s is a critical moment but it's just a way of kind of adding a little bit of nuance again to to that story and to just to be cognizant of of where it had come from and particularly in a in a post um uh in a post nineteen sixty kind of you know moment where you have um at least um nominal independence or you know uh, the emergence of new states and, and the retreat of one form of colonial power, um but they're also kind of trying to figure out are there are there new ways in which Western intervention in 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 the third world how did it change how you know it didn't go away effectively and that was one of the issues which i kind of wanted to address as well going back to your very first question which was i mean that was the thing which confronted me chatting to to this uh, angolan man in 2007 was you know it's you're just another form in a continuum of you know westerners intervening here in in sub-saharan africa so Mm -hmm.
0: yeah thank you for that um well Let's dig in into the the chapters. Your your first chapter deals with the Nigerian Civil War of 1967 to, to 70, also known as the Biafra conflict. And in past years, several historians, such as Lasse Herten, Dirk Moses, and uh, Florian Hanek have devoted substantial attention to this conflict. And what would you say is the number one in, in, reason, the in, in, biggest reason why Biafra is important for your narrative?
1: Oh Well, this is... (laughs) I've been looking at Biafra for so long, Felix, and it it just... You know, I... I, I, In the book, I suggest that it wasn't the first moment when, you know, um, Western uh, NGOs moved into the um, post-colonial world. Um, But it is... A hugely significant moment because it happens to capture public attention across, uh, effectively across a number of different countries in the West. I mean, you have my three case studies, but I mean, it's also capturing attention in Germany, in the Netherlands, in in Scandinavia, you know, and it's right the way across. It's, It's this moment of. I think television plays a crucial role in this because it's it's the first televised famine. It's a very visual thing, which Lasse Hirten has written a really brilliant article recently in the American Historical Review about the, the visual nature of this conflict and the imagery that was used. Um, and it's, it is very, it has that impact, which is just different from what had gone before. And that's, that's why I wanted to open the book with it. I mean, the concept that I use really in that first section of the book, the first two chapters, but particularly in Biafra, is the idea of access. This was the moment where um, you had a slightly different form of um, non-state access to what had traditionally been a, a British colonial territory, but now you have NGOs from around the world actually operating in it. So I think that's a crucial, crucial change, is that you know, you're, you're now generating new expectations about where NGOs should work and that they should intervene and they should be present the other reason it's it's significant is because of the as i as i mentioned in the book is is the pre-existing links that that were already there in in that case so in the irish case it's the missionaries i mean it, that creates you know such a radically different narrative than if they hadn't been present i mean even in biafra itself when when biafra declared itself independent in in 1967 there were um around 700 irish missionaries there um so that's a huge number really actually and and they created this kind of this created this direct link between you know irish people and and this crisis like for for good and for bad as i as i outline in the book um you also had you know these direct connections between britain and and nigeria obviously because because it, cause of its um you know, it's only uh, seven years after independence, right, that the, the war breaks out. And so the, the humanitarian response is framed very much in those terms as well. Um, and then the Canadian case as well is built on certain pre-existing uh, links. But the reason it's it's such an important moment is because they get transformed into something different. I mean, I, t- I start the chapter with, with a little story about the airlift. Um, which is such a, a visually striking uh, thing to to uh, to donors, that you have these planes flying into this region under the cover of night. NICE. You know, it's very dramatic to deliver this aid. You know, some of them get shot down. Um, and so you get this kind of n- this very dramatic story emerging, which prioritises the idea of Western intervention in, in the Global South. But also the, the other the other thing which i mentioned in the chapter is it's also the doors were opened from the third world so i i in the last part of that, that chapter I, I detail how the uh the biafran authorities and the nigerians dictated where and how the ngos could work um and in often cases They were manipulating effectively the aid, you know, and and that's been a long running discussion about you know how to what extent the the NGOs allowed the war to go on far longer than it than it should have, um with all of the the problems that come with that and all of the suffering that comes with that. But in, in the in the chapter I think it is a really significant moment because, for example, the Biafran authorities allowed you know NGOs to to land at at the same landing strip as the uh, as arms are being flown into. So, you know there is an element of just this this different context. You know where it's post-colonial. You know you're you're being drawn in by television, by this huge media campaign, by those personal connections as well, which open doors for people to the third world, often for the first time in this form of of humanitarian emergency. Um, again, the acceleration comes in because before that, they would have had the connections in different ways. And now they're being being rearticulated in this kind of emergency relief context. So it, it has a huge kind of impact. It also has an impact, just to say one last thing, because it leaves a legacy. The people who worked there, you know, a lot of them are expelled from Nigeria after the end of the war in January 1970. And they have a momentum behind them. And they have the legitimacy that probably that comes from their intervention um, and from public donations. And now they see, well, what do we do next? And from a lot of them I spoke to, it wasn't, well, we just go back to what we were doing. It was more, we want to keep doing this. And I think that is really significant too. It creates momentum.
0: And and many of them just, just went over to East Pakistan, it seems, right? Because uh, I mean, it's fascinating when chapter two, you, you trace... Uh, all these NGOs that just get together—they're all pals who've collaborated—and now they they meet in in South Asia. Um, and, and in that chapter two, you make some several fascinating claims. The one I the ones I found most most intriguing uh, is your claim that NGO descriptions of refugee camps and and Bangladeshi victimhood both flattened regional and cultural differences and elevated the salvation of biological life as the most important task uh, for humanitarians. Now, my question is, to what extent is this novel? And to what extent is this just the way humanitarianism operates
1: normally? That's a really good question, (laughs) Felix. And, and, you know, there's, there's... Um I was borrowing a little bit from uh, some brilliant work, which has been done by uh, Tom Scott Smith and Joe Glassman and others, um, and uh, about this kind of reduction of intervention to saving biological life. But when I applied their work to, to, to that context, East Pakistan and the creation of, of an independent Bangladesh, I mean, the, the phrase I use in the chapter is that NGOs managed to construct compassionate space. And and really, what I was trying to get at there was what I had to do effectively was to create a model of intervention that wouldn't rely on the kind of networks and personal links that had brought them into Biafra. So the again, the Irish case is probably a very good one. There were next to almost zero connections with that with that crisis in terms of personnel or personal links to, to the region. Now the British NGOs obviously had links. Again, it's it's a former colonial. Uh, territory the canadians kind of similar to the irish they had to kind of build those links into the region and so they had to do it in some way uh, i mean they had always i think ngos have always kind of worked on the on the margins and particularly after the second world war um they they were very concerned with ideas of nutrition and modern ideas about you know what levels of nutrition and what levels of um of um, age should we give and can we measure that? And that really accelerates into the 50s, into the 60s. This moment in 1971, I think, is critical because of the way that they use that in a different way to articulate a vision of intervention which can be done anywhere in the world. It can be replicated anywhere. At least that that's what I saw. The more I dug into it, the more that became convincing to me, because what they were effectively doing, I think, was saying, to themselves and to the public and their donors, the question was, why are we here? You know, and and the question then became, well, we're here to save people's lives. And how do we frame that? Well, their, their actual way in was not at the beginning of the crisis in March 1971, you know, which is the beginning of a really brutal war and a massive movement of refugees, I think around 9 million in about eight months across the border from what's now Bangladesh into India. But it was in early June 1971 that the NGOs actually accelerated their intervention, but it was through the threat of cholera and their attempt to control that with vaccination. And I think that, to me, spoke to me a lot because it was very much a medicalized, you know, it reduced everything to, we're going in here to, to just to do this. And it allowed them as well to... Um, marginalize the political questions really i mean i i I, as i say in the chapter that's really crucial to constructing the the compassionate space they're very aware of the politics of what's going on they're speaking to the refugees they can see the brutal brutal impact that this conflict is having on people in that region but for them the the longer term narrative of intervening in in the anywhere in the third world relies on them being able to justify it in terms of intervening just to save lives and in this case you know that the narrative becomes well it's we'll put pressure on on the international community to stop this conflict but that's their job our job is to save lives and then once you reduce that down to well we have the tools of nutrition we have the tools of you know um, vaccination of you know making refugee camps of of give providing medical aid then that in that context becomes a model which they can export elsewhere and that's why i think those two moments which i grouped together in the first section of the book are really important by Africa and bangladesh as you said similar similar people work in both as well and and i think that's also crucial because they have now moved from a west african context to a south asian one which is very different but they can see the similarities as well and that allows them to see okay now here's a model which we can now export and we can use anywhere else in the world and I think that's why I mean that that idea I come back to but of compassionate space they are constructing it there in a way which they had never managed to articulate I think before in as coherently as they managed to do uh, by early 1972 when they move into independent Bangladesh and set up much longer term development programs which they justify in very similar terms
0: yeah this is a very very insightful uh, part part of this of this chapter. Um, well, and in and, and, and chapters three and four, uh, they take a shift, uh, step back and focus more heavily on intellectual influences on, on NGO work, which is also fascinating to read. Because I, I think it shows very well how, how influential, uh, critical thought from the global South, Latin America in particular, was for the formation of, of this NGO moment. Um, And you focus on ideas of social justice and and fair trade. Um, And this critical thought is is rather radical, sometimes uh, revolutionary. But what the NGOs eventually produced based on it was rather non-threatening to to the liberal (laughs) order, to capitalism. How come? How is that possible?
1: That's such a great question, Felix. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's this is this is the you know, uh, I'm glad you saw it as a kind of a, a, a step back and a, an attempt to kind of understand the intellectual foundations because behind all of those emergencies and in parallel to them, what I was seeing in the archives across all three countries was this discussion of what are we actually doing here? And and it, as you said, it's this convergence of a, a a radicalism emerging from within all three societies, you know. So, you know, the the rise of the new left very prominent in in Britain and in Canada as well. Less so in Ireland, where it's much more a, kind of a radical Catholicism that that actually informs a lot of this thought. And then that's been met, as you said, by people reading Paulo Freire, you know, um, getting very energized by those ideas, you know, from Pedagogy of the Oppressed, particularly. Um, and and then kind of having this conversation and I, I mean i i call the the chapter um charity or justice which which should we do you know um, and i i think i think what i would say in answer to your question because it's a brilliant question is is why did they end up answering well we'll kind of you know we don't really want to, to overall their, their answers we we won't kind of rock the boat too much you know um and i mean i tell that story through the, through the case study in chapter 4 of the new international economic order um and their response to it and I suppose my argument is that what emerges from that those conversations, which are oftentimes very, very, very um, sharp, and there's a lot of conflict kind of hidden in very polite tones often in, in, in what they're saying. I think what, what I would say is it's not that they all end up on that kind of, you know, non-threatening, liberal kind of, you know, Trying to kind of reform uh, the, the the natural order, or I said natural order, but the existing order is what I mean. Um, but rather that they, they create a, they create a sector which allows for all these different voices to be to be encompassed within it. And so you get that in two different ways. One is that you know some of the organisations, particularly War and Want in Britain and um, Oxfam Canada, really take a step quite far to the left, and uh, this, I mean, in in terms of of what these organisations can be, and um, so you know they they turn to kind of radical ideas of solidarity. Um, you know, very good example of that is is Oxfam Canada's work in Central America in the early nineteen eighties. You know, where they're very much standing alongside Salvadoran refugees in Honduras, and you know, and and really promoting their cause. You know, more than anything else, and seeing that development. You know, is is completely wrapped up in, in this in the politics of what's going on there. And the same with Warren Want in that in that period. So they almost give an outlet for that radicalism. They allow people to support the NGO sector, but they they become the outlet for it. And even within big catch-all organizations like Oxfam, you know, you get that too. So so within Oxfam, you, you have this kind of really kind of tough conversations around 1969, 1970. And the radicalism is kind of packaged away to, to one part of the organization. And, and it tends to kind of crop up in in discussions about human rights in, in the early 1980s, or about um about you know their attitude to, to fair trade, maybe, or to, to issues of justice. And the same in Ireland, actually, Chokra takes on that radical mantle and, and very much kind of pushes a, a liberation theology view. But I think the answer to your question fundamentally is that. I, I think that the NGOs themselves belong to a very similar way of seeing the world to the political context from which they emerge. So by that, I, I mean that they they tend to see it in terms of the same kind of um, rational, kind of pr- built on progress. You know, But what they want to do is to make that system fairer. They don't necessarily want to overthrow it. I think that's the crucial thing that comes out of what I what I read they they you know they, they don't go so far to the left that they that they want to entirely rip up the, the patterns of global capitalism what they end up latching onto the new international economic order for is because it seems to be a route to a fairer form of global trade and to them I think that, that, that then allows them to articulate support for it in a in a much more kind of robust way because you know when it's about fairness rather than about revolution which I think they're most of them are kind of, you know, allergic to. Maybe I'll say, um, then then that becomes you know it's an easier thing to support. So fair trade I think becomes something which they can they can latch on or fairer trade maybe because it doesn't have the the fair trade label as we would understand it. Yes, but it's about fairer trade. And in the book I, I describe the end and en, the new international economic order as almost an, an imaginary because what they end up doing is is depositing a lot of their energy and their ideas about global reform into it, even if it doesn't necessarily tally with what the the group of 77 and the third world wanted, what what they're kind of doing is saying actually you know here's a campaign we can get behind. So I think the, the, the answer to your question is really that they they never really break out of the, the, the um, that kind of uh, progressive rationalized system from which they emerge. What they're trying to do is build a fairer version of it, ultimately. and and But one of the reasons I think they are so successful in this period is because they manage, and the word I use in the book is, to compartmentalise those more radical visions and to encompass them within organisations and within the sector as a whole. So what they do then is they capture support from all of those different strands. And it's why I use the word compassion in, in the title of the book, because then it becomes about, you know, whatever your vision of of um, a fairer, more just world, or if you just want to do emergency relief, we, we are the groups that you uh, that can deliver that for you and we're the ones that you should give your support to. And I think that's ultimately what, what comes out of this moment.
0: Yeah, and, and I think what is very impressive is how you, you show so well uh, this consensus making of, of taking ideas from Ivan Illich and Paulo Freire and then mixing up with Lyndon Johnson and Bob McNamara, uh, which, you which know, these people probably have nothing in common at all if they got together in one room. Yet somehow the NGOs make it work, and and that, that's fascinating. Um, now, in chapter five, you you take a very critical stance towards the basic needs approach uh, of the mid to late 1970s. On page 112, for instance, you note that the emphasis on basic needs uh, on I quote, raising the productivity of the poor, end of quote, was another quote, a technocratic solution to a deep-rooted and complex problem. End of quote. Can you tell our listeners more about what well, what were what was the basic needs approach and, and why are you so critical of it?
1: Well, this is a crucial moment for NGOs, right? Um you mentioned Lyndon Johnson earlier on, right? And and Robert McNamara you know, and McNamara obviously is very famous for his role in Lyndon Johnson's government for, for different reasons than he became famous for later in, in the 1970s. But when he became president of the World Bank in 1968, um, he he kind of is at the head of a, of a moment of change for what international development could and should be. And so this is coming, as I explain in the book, from lots of different quarters, from academic quarters, from religious quarters, this idea that the top-down trickle-down model of development after the Second World War clearly hasn't worked. It's you know it it's it's a failure, as as they say when they assess the first UN development decade at, at the end of it in nineteen sixty nine. It's just it just hasn't worked. It hasn't lifted people out of uh, out of poverty. And so, as I describe in the book, you know this this ideas began to kind of percolate of looking for an alternative to, to that, and one in particular which would as they As they end up articulating through basic needs in the end, which would target kind of measures of what McNamara and the World Bank called absolute poverty and so that's the crucial shift that happens it's away from the trickle down to more a kind of a village level or community level intervention and what they do through basic needs um which has been interpreted again its it became a very broad uh, became a vessel for a very broad set of ideas, but when you distill it down fundamentally, what it's about is kind of targeting. Um, certain indicators in, in health, in education, and in areas where you could actually um, effectively um, give people a, a, a foundation from which to build themselves upwards, if you see what I mean. So it's to try and kind of lift the level, or this is the way they articulated it and the vision that they came up with at the bank in 1972, and which became the kind of staple for for bank policies afterwards. This is the division that they targeted. If we target these very fundamental indicators of poverty, and if we can change them at that level, then what we will allow people to do is to is to kind of move on from there to to, as I say in the book, to make themselves kind of economic actors independently themselves, rather than waiting for the trickle down to happen. So it's it's a really dramatic shift, you know, and, and uh, you know, and and people like Barbara Ward as well, very uh, very very influential in this, the, the Economist who had been. You know, who had been an advisor to to Johnson, who was uh, who had been involved in, in Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council, as well, um, and then becomes influential in her role at at, uh, at I think she was an economist at Columbia uh, in New York in, in the early uh, in the early 1970s. And so you're getting all these these ideas kind of crystallized. The reason this is so important for NGOs is because that's where they were working already, and and so they are already doing those village level projects, community level interventions and once they kind of latch on to Johnson's idea um then li- they literally say you know if he, if the world bank is serious about this and if governments are serious about this kind of basic needs approach then we're the ones to 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 deliver it um and i in, in the chapter uh, i kind of tell the story about how that then leads to the creation of um much much kind of more sophisticated forms of donor support for, for NGOs and particularly kind of government-led um, interventions and where they, you know, they get drawn into the system then. I mean, I, I, I stole the title of a Pink Floyd song for one of the headings in, in the chapter, which is Welcome to the Machine, um, because it you know it very much is, you know, once you start that kind of co-financing model, which they do begin. So in quick succession, the British, the European community, and the Irish government in the mid 1970s set up these co-financing programmes where they will fund development um, at that level, and that ends up by the early 1980s with what, what are known as block grants, where you're giving kind of money to NGOs without necessarily having to approve individual projects, and so that kind of binds them together into 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 this kind of broader system to which they eventually belong. The reason I'm so critical of it, <laughs> Felix, is because. I think what it does is, is it is it kind of well. There's two reasons. One is it's very interventionist, right? It's it's predicated on on bypassing what are seen as failed states, right? And and it's it's predicated on actually, you know, uh, going to that village level, you know, and and saying, well, actually, we know best, and you know, we we will lift you out of poverty without actually maybe necessarily, you know, providing the kind of um, I mean, the supporters of the new international economic order were highly critical, oftentimes, of this model because they said, actually, you know, what you're not doing is is providing a fair trading model that would, you know, even within the bounds of of global capitalism, would would allow us to emerge from from the inequalities that you're that you've created over like decades. But what and also what you're doing is undermining our sovereignty by by going right past us to, to this level of intervention. Um, it also the reason i'm so critical of it is it just focuses on that idea of of primarily focuses on, i mean and again you know there there are a lot of good things that come out of it you know in terms of you know actually raising people's uh, levels of living but it the, the focus ultimately is on making people economic actors right it's it's about kind of uh, getting them to to to, to raise and to give them the ability to have that platform to to enter the global economy themselves as individuals. So I think that's problematic because the, in, in the chapter, I also just talk a little bit about that tension between welfare, uh, uh, what forms of welfare do you want and, and what ultimately comes out is this much more, um, this model, which draws NGOs into that idea of you know of making people rational economic actors, and so that's that's kind of where I maybe it's I'm not sure I would say it's a it's a missed opportunity, but it just it I think critics certainly would say it it, it shifts the energy away from the from the idea of justice towards you know something different,
0: and and it does seem relevant of the civilized ambition of the of the 19th century, right? Which is which is some, a, a point that 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 you make very well. Uh, Um, No, and and in the middle of all this shift to basic needs comes the Cambodian crisis. What would you say was the most important impact of this crisis uh, on the NGOs?
1: So this is such a fascinating crisis, partly because, you know, it's um, uh, it's partly the birth in some ways of a new generation so a lot of the people who worked on the and Bertrand Tate has done a fantastic work on this just on on how you know this this is a moment where you where you crystallize a group of people who are working in a region who later go on to lead a lot of NGOs and to move to very high uh, high positions in 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 different parts of the aid industry across international organizations but for me the crucial point when I when I came to this, to researching and writing this chapter, I was just thinking, what is it about this that, that is making it so significant or, or make has made it a significant touchstone for the industry? And the word I, I just kept coming back to was legitimacy, actually, Felix. It gave them legitimacy as, as actors. And, and your follow-up question would be, well, what's so different about that to legitimacy maybe that they gained in Biafra or Bangladesh or elsewhere? Well, actually, to me, it was this confluence of the legitimacy which comes from the donors from below. Um, and as I outlined, that chapter is a very deliberate attempt, particularly by Oxfam UK, to capture donors and to capture their support by being the ones, in, in Oxfam's case, who operated within uh, Cambodia itself after after the fall of the Khmer Rouge. And so that's one way where they, they managed to kind of justify their interventions and, and they managed to kind of um, you know, say actually, you know, we're the ones that you need to give to, and and they they gain a lot of money, and so the, so they gain legitimacy from that because they're saying, well, we're the first movers, we're the ones who will actually deliver your aid. That's not particularly new, right? That's just a slightly bigger version of what I've been talking about before. So the legitimacy actually comes from above, and I, and I think this is the reason why I wanted to write the book in the first place is because I always saw this as not just a bottom up movement, but as one which is created, where the spaces have been created for it to act. And so that moment, the fall of the the Khmer Rouge, the ginormous crisis that results from it, particularly on the border with, with Thailand, is also a moment where the UN and the international system begin to try and standardize their responses to emergency relief. And as I outlined in the chapter, they are I mean they may not have ever done it properly right or come up with a proper answer to it but th- at the same time as ngos have now emerged as very prominent actors the un is looking for ways to rationalize and to to try and you know avoid duplication to create a more effective however we define that word you know it's quite uh you know it's quite a controversial one but th- what they're trying to do effectively or what they end up doing is allowing NGOs to become part of that process of um of finding a better solution in the longer term. And so as I as I mentioned in the in the chapter, you know, there are very kind of maybe they, they look marginal to the story, but I think in the longer term they're significant of meetings where NGOs are invited, for example, in, in Geneva between the major international organizations through the 70s, which is just according them a seat at the table, I think, is the ultimate thing I would take from the chapter. You know, where they're where they are now kind of becoming part of that system in the way that which basic needs brought them into the development system. Now in parallel, they're being brought much more um, formally into the into the humanitarian or the emergency relief system. And so even working alongside UNICEF or um, collaborating more formally with ICRC and and the, the major agencies in that region. And the crisis, as I outlined in the book, is riddled with kind of ethical questions and it's highly problematic and has had a very long term impact on on how the sector sees itself but i think legitimacy was the word i just came coming back to and the concept which made most sense to me because after that they're they're looked at in a different way i think you know and so this is this is the moment where they they managed to capture that kind of sense of okay these are actors which have which are now not going to go away um, and which are delivering uh, relief in certain ways, and we should integrate them into our systems more formally. And so this is what accords in that ex- additional le- legitimacy.
0: Well, it's also fascinating is that you, you draw a connection to this emerging neoliberal thinking uh, on you know, private is always better and let's rationalize and, and somehow NGOs seem to fit uh, this. You know, they're non-state, they're critical of the state, and so it, that that's also very interesting uh, what, what
1: you're what well, you're doing I, here. I'm I'm glad you picked on that because just when I was when I came to write the book, that was one of the things which I felt sometimes people fall into too easily is the idea that you know, well you know, neoliberal ideas took over. You're trying to minimise the size of the state. Therefore, NGOs emerge. I think I think as an explanation on its own that's just not it, it doesn't it doesn't work it doesn't fit but once you put it together with all these other things as you as you've kind of hinted there then it becomes you know a, a much more convincing argument as part of a bigger argument of legitimi- legitimizing their actions so you know once you get that shift towards a different you know view of the role of the state but concurrently you get this you know bottom up support for ngos and, and legitimizing their actions in that way and this kind of legitimation from the international agencies, then it becomes potent. I think on its own, the neoliberal argument doesn't hold as much for me, but actually taken together, it, it becomes a very, very potent argument.
0: Yeah. Very good. And well, moving on to to El Salvador, which is another fascinating case study. Um, I feel like your discussion of NDO engagement there mirrors the previous chapter, um, because once again, There are radical liberationist voices uh, from the global South demanding structural change, demanding very radical visions of human rights. I mean, Archbishop Romero. But what the NGOs end up doing is, again, a far cry. Um, So is is this the story of the more things change, the more they stay the same?
1: Yeah, that's a really... uh, I can see where you go with that question. It's a really good one, Felix. Thanks very much. Yeah, it, it this is this was i mean i have to say i mean just just as a preface i mean this was you know it was a very difficult book to research in a lot of ways because you're kind of distanced you're distanced a little bit from uh the brutal brutal things that you're reading about all the time you know i mean el salvador was just unbelievably hard to, to read just because of what was going on there and and i think you know just you know it was just yeah, it, it, I just I just wanted to dwell on that a little bit because I think just to, to not brush over what what we re- what I was reading about and writing about. In this case, it was it was really really you know just wading through um, conversations with refugees and conversations with people on the ground and, and and trips was just really really difficult. Actually, I mean, and and here I am, like forty years removed from it, and and just trying to trying to make sense of what made people act in that way. I think your question of yeah does it does it stay the same is a really really fascinating one because in that chapter what I w- I was trying to do two things I suppose one was as you've kind of hinted which was to show that you know it it the global south or the the third world and the movements within it actually had a quite a significant influence at times on how and where ngos acted and I, and I thought that was critical because I hadn't really, you know, um, when I went into the project, I hadn't thought about that. That's something which kind of came to me through the archives, and and the more I dug into it, the more I saw that they could be kind of conditioned to act in certain ways. But that also was was often very very pragmatic, you know. That and in this chapter, it's really about the turn to human rights as the articulation of support and as the best way to kind of, in the eyes, actually of eventually or ultimately of of those actors in el salvador was to was to use human rights as a tool through which to gain western support for their movement i mean that's very reductive right i mean i, I don't i don't mean to to reduce it that way because lots of people supported them as well because they supported their vision of you know um uh, in the same way as people supported the sandinista in 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 nicaragua and and broader kind of left wing movements in the region um And so that that's one element of this story i think which is actually really crucial is is why did ngos turn to human rights but embedded in your question is why human rights rather than a much more radical form of solidarity right which which might lead you to you know let's say actual solidarity which oxfam canada i think really did attempt which was this idea that you know actually we we you know if we're serious about the the really fundamental idea of solidarity its hierarchy is gone we stand beside these people we believe with with them and we believe in in their movement and and we will do everything to achieve it whereas to me the the ultimate recourse to human rights while it was actually quite radical for the NGO sector itself to to move towards that kind of condemnation of you know the the abuse of, of human rights. And it comes, as I explained the chapter, from that 1970s moment, which which Samuel Moyne and, and Jan Eckel and, and others have written about very well. Um, it comes, the impetus comes and the language comes from that. It's seen as radical in a lot of cases because it's seen as something which is, you know, um, as I think Jan Eckel has described, it, an, a, a non-politics politics. So you get that sense that they are still being political and they're very reluctant to, at first to go down the human rights road. But ultimately, and I think this is where you're going with your question. Ultimately, it also belongs to the same kind of forms of compassion, in the sense that it can be about saving human life, rather than necessarily about kind of radically uh, attacking the structures that maybe are causing the the um, inequalities or the oppression in the first place. And I think ultimately that's why they were they gravitated towards it because it was the, to me, it was probably the most radical vision that they could gain support for, or that they could articulate uh, within the kind of mindset with which they actually approached uh, the third world um, in, in the broadest terms. Now, that's not to say that you know you didn't have much more radic- radical ideas filtering in, and particularly when you look at the, the Christian organisations and obviously the Catholic ones, they're quite taken by the ideas of liberation theology. Um, and they do kind of very much express their support in those terms, but actually, I, I've got one example from Ireland, where, which I think might actually be useful in explaining why they don't go down that route as much. And it's 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 from a book which was written much later, around 1990, about Trocra and, and interviewed, and I, I, the, the person is is unquote or, or unnamed uh, uh, off the record, obviously in in their quote, but this trochera, uh Officials said that if the Irish public actually knew what we spent their money on, they probably wouldn't give us the money anymore. And I, and I always thought that's that is really fascinating. It's very telling that what they were effectively doing there was in they were very much themselves probably in sympathy with um with uh, the the movement in El Salvador with the ideas of liberation theology and with broader movement across Latin America, but to actually sell that the most radical thing I think they felt probably they could do. Was human rights, um, partly because you know amnesty by now was was becoming much more prominent. People were getting used to that idea of radicalism, but it it still it took a little bit of the sting of of the political out of out of it. So, for example, when Ronald Reagan came to Ireland in 1984, you know, visiting as as U.S. presidents with some sort of Irish ancestry often do, looking for his roots. You know, you had um, you know. Irish nuns, priests, lots of people who who knew about the situation there, on the streets, you know, you know, campaigning for the human rights of of the Salvadoran people. So, and and actually the, the broader region, obviously, but they were focused on El Salvador at that point. And so, I think that it becomes a radicalism, which is I don't want to say acceptable because it's still a very radical thing, right? I mean, I that, I don't want to demean kind of support for human rights in that way, but I think that that became, you know as radical as they could countenance or they felt maybe they could sell to donors and even and even internally, the debates about whether you even articulate that that I saw within our organizations like Oxfam, for example, were very, very fraught, you know, that they're not sure, can we actually do this? While and this is something which I, I probably should insert here, but comes back again during the, throughout the book is there's often a difference between the, their staff and the fields on the ground and the people at home in the West. That's something which I saw throughout the book. And in this case, very, very visibly, people who work for these aid agencies on the ground in Central America, whether, you know, whether they can actually, most of them can't work in El Salvador. So they're in Mexico or they're in Honduras. And they're all saying, we really have to do something about this. This is just brutal. And whereas at home, they're much more kind of, well, actually, no, if if we do this, and particularly in a Cold War context, if we begin to side with the with you know uh with left-wing movements then we're leaving ourselves open to charges of of this criticism and of, of others whereas human rights offers a way to be critical uh, and to hold some of those governments to account without necessarily supporting left-wing revolution if you see what i mean so i think that is where you were going with, with the question i think it's a very good one because i think that's that is absolutely crucial to, to the compassion that I think emerges from this period,
0: absolutely. I mean, and and then you show how conservatives could get behind human rights because they saw it as well protecting individual life, whereas more mm-hmm. well, radical liberationists uh, had a more holistic, I would say, conception of human rights. And but but they could speak that same language,
1: right? And and, and, and that's crucial, just so just, fascinating. So crucial please, to that, Felix, please. I think is is that the is that the um. Groups on the ground, as they as they were conditioning uh, the, as they as they knew they could reach the West through the NGOs, they realised I think very quickly that human rights would be the way to gain support for their campaigns. I think that we shouldn't kind of overlook that pragmatism and and the fact that you know there is this kind of uh, south north narrative happening here in terms of kind of conditioning a story and gaining support and and using. You know, realizing the human rights is one way to do it as well. And I think NGOs, the NGO story in Central America is is very much that's very much part of
0: it. Mm, absolutely, and I think this stuff deals very well with Mary, Mary Todd's recent book on on human rights in El Salvador and and the comments that that she makes of a, of a similar argument there. So really, really good. Um, all right, well, moving on. Um, one, one of my honestly, one of my biggest surprises uh, in, reading, in reading your book uh, came towards the end in and, and your critiques of Band-Aid and Bob Geldof. I'm, I'm a fan myself. Uh, so uh, especially the term populist humanitarianism uh, was surprising to me because of the rather negative connotation that the term populism has today. Um, but then you show how Geldof himself actually used the term populism he called himself a populist humanitarian, although I am not so sure that the word had the same connotation then as it has today. I wonder um, could you lay out how transformative uh, celebrity activism and and popular music were uh, in this refashioning of NGO work in the 1980s um, and, and what do you think that it had? I quote, ah, "very questionable outcomes." End of quote.
1: Yeah, this is this was uh, this was my uh, chapter where I got to spend lots of time on YouTube listening to uh, listening to all those songs from the mid 1980s and uh, and watching documentaries about how how they were made and uh, yeah I'm probably spending a lot of time cringing uh, cringing through it, Felix. Yeah, I mean the, the the question about populism. Yeah, I mean it, it it's I mean, again, lots of people have have written about this moment as being really critical, um, and really important for celebrity humanitarianism. What what I was what I was doing in the in the chapter is is two things. Well, actually, it came from the archives, right? So, what I was really challenged by when I read it was this idea. I I'd always thought, okay, like this will be towards the end of the book. It'll be the moment where NGOs realise, you know, that they'll ride on this wave of support, which. You know which eclipses anything which came before and i think i mentioned in the book you know they're they're, they're doubling and you know quadrupling their income in, in the mid-1980s as a result of the of this of this brutal um uh, crisis but the more i read the more i realized how separated they were and how afraid they were and concerned they were about this new form of public action And I, and i i thought okay well how do i describe this and how do i describe what happens Um, And I have read uh, Geldof's um, uh, uh, autobiography, Is This It? And in that, that's where he describes that. And he realises that, actually, I'm the one who's articulating this new popular support. And the reason I call it populism is primarily because it's anti-bureaucratic and it's anti-kind of the traditional establishment. And I felt that that was also anti-NGO as well. And effectively... In in some ways, I mean, like the NGOs benefit massively for it, which is which is just your your the, the second question, which I'll come back to in a minute. But it, it just really struck me the more I read about it, the the less the NGOs knew what to do about it. it. It was actually incredible. I mean, they they effectively internally are saying, most of us actually arrived in this sector in the late sixties, early nineteen seventies. We don't belong to this generation. Most of the time, we've our our work has been targeting the support of students of middle class people, not really this much broader spectrum of you know of um, school children, which they kind of you know tapped to some degree with the Cambodia crisis, but not in the same way. And and the much more radical form of of giving which emerges in this period, which as you just hinted at, is is tied to consumerism, right? And it's tied to you know uh, this new pop culture and it's tied to this new kind of generation which they had in some ways i mean i think they would probably admit that themselves dismissed you know uh, i opened the chapter with a quote from um uh someone who worked colin Regan, who worked for trocra uh, the irish ngo in the mid-1980s where he he basically says who would have thought that this would be the generation that would do this they just had no idea and so you know you're right i mean this 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 kind of sense of a movement emerging you know i mean the the great image that i think always from from live Aid and the concerts in in on 13th of july 1985 is of everything being branded you know this t-shirt saves lives or this program saves lives or or whatever you're buying this this baseball cap saves lives you know and I think that, that moment, just they it just got away from NGOs. And they just couldn't understand what it was. And as you said, Geldof himself did really understand this. You know, he, he grasped that what he was doing in, in the late 1984, early 1985, was setting up an organization which would articulate a vision which was anti, um, what he saw as a administrative kind of lag, like that things would take too long what he was articulating was a much more direct form of action. I think that's why I came to the idea. And I agree, like, you know, populism has been used in lots of different ways more recently. in in this case, I mean, this is the way I I kind of see it. It has a kind of a, it keeps some of those core tenets of, you know, anti-bureaucracy kind of, I mean, the core thing about Band-Aid was always that it was intended to disband itself, that it was intended to only be a short-term organization. It was just convenient, just set it up, that it wouldn't do its own projects; that it would just give the money away to other organisations. And I think, I think, as an expression of that populism, if you have to have an organisational form of what Geldof wanted, then that was it, really. I mean, it, and it did disband um, eventually by 1987. And I think the reason I think it's questionable um, outcome. So I like I had to struggle really with why do I end the book with this? Why is this the end of the moment? And the way I came to it was that it, it introduced NGOs to a totally new form of giving, which they didn't understand, but which they came to be able to harness to some degree, partly because of the amount of money that they got from it. And so it, this leads up to a, a different moment you know, from uh, which accelerates, particularly after the, the, the end of the Cold War. But it, it leads them to, to um, say, OK, well, how do we actually harness this energy? And one of the lessons, unfortunately, that they learn is is that the kind of imagery that Band Aid used, which we're probably all familiar with through Live Aid, which is you know effectively you know starving children or dying children in a lot of cases, um, and that makes money and it gains popular support. I mean, the the statistic I use in the book is that you know about ninety one percent of Irish adults did something for uh, for famine relief. that's
0: an impressive uh, number
1: it's unbelievable actually it's just when i read that i went nine out of every 10 people and so the reason it's problematic is because it embeds even though the the sector knows what it's doing and and internally it's highly critical of band-aid and says look this imagery is projecting we need to do something about this but the momentum that it had was i think was too much and and they you know they they do all of the thing i mean there's the images images of africa report in 1987 which tried to establish some ethical parameters for how you act and, and what kind of images you use um in, in the uk context um but at the same time you know the the power of that kind of bottom up kind of uh, populist kind of uh, energy they they felt that they had to tap into and the way that they did it was was i think in the longer term by you know by moving much more towards that that form of campaigning i mean i was at a seminar a few years ago in, in dublin where which was just you know it's full of people from the ngo and uh, the broader sector and somebody said when will our live aid moment be and I, and i i thought to myself surely you don't want another one of those but actually i think that kind of helps to understand you know that that they see it as a moment where you know where popular support emerged for a, for an idea and got behind it, and that they could harness it. And I think that it, it just changed the way that they talked about aid in, in a fundamental way. And it also changes the sector as well, Felix, because it, you know so much money comes in; they're able to kind of broaden their bureaucracy. They're able to build a bigger, um, bigger aid industry, and then that leads to the kind of um, much more expanded model that comes in, in the nineteen nineties.
0: Well, um, uh, moving to my last question. Uh, and I guess, given, given that there is no shortage of, of crisis, I mean, right now, the Ukraine would be the, the best example. Uh, what, what would you say then is the future of aid focus and NGOs? Do, do, you, do you believe that they haven't really progressed much uh, in terms of mental framework since the 1980s?
1: That's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been involved in lots of conversations recently about you know the the two things which I think really are troubling the sector now, which I think have their roots slightly in this period, or at least you know they they haven't been resolved. Are how do we? I mean, the key question that they're tackling now is localization, right? And it's linked to the idea of decolonizing the sector, and just because I've been involved in various different projects and and different conversations with the sector, because I've done a lot of work with, with NGOs about, about, you know, reflection and everything else on their past. That is the key question, Felix. And I think in, in my book, kind of what I'm hinting at is, is the difficulty in actually resolving those questions. When you have a sector which was born from a much more charitable model and which draws a lot of its support because of that, and is born within a particular vision of the system, and a particular and this is why I, I really i'm sticking to the acceleration kind of idea which has all of this baggage which comes from you know empire which comes from missionary interventions i think you as you mentioned earlier on it comes from the idea of a civilizing project and now you're asking them to hand over power and it and it is fundamentally very difficult you know for for people who have you know given all of their lives to this i mean on the one hand they'll 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 argue yes we do need to do this on the other hand there's still a residual well but you know we we have done we have done good you know and we have been I think
0: I, you know, I lost you there real quick could you recap just just quickly
1: so i, I think you know they they effectively they're sorry, sorry which bit, which bit did i did you did i <laughs> skip out on
0: i uh, well you were you were starting to talk about um, the process of giving up power. Uh,
1: yeah, gi- okay. like, like
0: how difficult uh, it is to to give up
1: uh, power. Great, right. I'll go from there. So, um, so effectively, yeah, they they f- they find it very difficult, obviously, to to transfer power because of the nature, because of where they've come from. And I and I think I can understand that. I mean, all all the time in the book, I suppose what I would say is, you know, because I've taught I've taught modules on these questions. I've, de- I've talked with students. I've talked with lots of people who work for NGOs and really what the book what I'm trying to understand is how do good intentions sometimes produce bad outcomes and so what I'm not trying to suggest is that the intentions are not good and I think that is the crucial question which you have to figure out for yourself is if you're working in that industry like how do I actually get closer to that concept of solidarity that maybe we were talking about in the early 1970s and what does that actually look like now I mean one of the things which i find baffling about the industry now is you know as you can see from the book i mean human rights development emergency relief you know uh, global justice fair trade are all interlinked whereas now the, the, the sector is much more kind of siloed i think you know humanitarians work in emergency relief development tends to be separate human rights in, in a separate section and i think just the the intersection of those is is becoming more obvious and the importance of that those intersections is becoming more obvious to the sector And i think it's just that the idea of how do we resolve those questions which we started while not necessarily kind of throwing out the idea that people actually want to do something and want to help and to suggest that that's a bad thing because it's not necessarily it's about understanding what outcomes it produces these are fundamentally really really difficult questions i mean and it all comes back actually to power for me, Felix. I mean, in the the conclusion to the book, I used the example of the sex scandals and the sexual abuse, which was, you know, covered up effectively. And And the reason I used it is because it is such a good example of when, you know, institutionalization and, you know, just, you know, turning a blind eye effectively often can just lead to these horrendous abuses of power. And I think that remains... While well, well, that's, you know, it, it's, it's, it is kind of, you know, one, just one small section of the entire kind of aid sector, you know, it, it remains kind of, if you take it as a broader question of, well, what are the power dynamics here? And how do we actually kind of make this much more about solidarity and much less about those kind of hierarchies of humanity, the paternalism that comes with it? I mean, that is the fundamental question I think that I would see coming out of this. It's the unresolved question in my book, because they didn't resolve it. Mm. Um because this is the period where they create the template, really, I think, for what they have now, and particularly with the pandemic, when you don't have as many um, uh, staff from the West on the ground, The fact that, you know, aid programmes continue to operate without you is also a fundamentally difficult question to answer for yourself. It is an existential crisis, really. You know, Um, what do we do? You know, how do we hand over power, really, to the people who who should be in charge? Um, But how do we resolve that among ourselves? And I don't have an answer to that because I think it's really tricky and I don't work in the sector and I think it's very difficult to do. I think the obvious thing to do is to hand over the power um and to, and just to provide monetary support um but i can understand why it's very difficult for people to unravel you know maybe a century and a half of of intervention you know when you know when that's what you've been deeply embedded in and and a lot of your identity is probably wrapped up in that as well so it's it it's my way of saying that i don't want to throw out you know or don't want to disparage people's good motivations but i do think we should question what the outcome of that actually is
0: Absolutely. and and the, the donors probably will have a say about that right that that's the other facet which you, you touch in the, in the book very well as well and and perhaps I guess my, my uh, a, a last a last bit uh, could could perhaps ngos reinvent themselves by linking up with social movements um and that that's uh, let's say for example black lives matter I don't know in, in Canada or or in the US uh, would, would that be? Uh, a way to reinvigorate uh, some of these NGOs, and not just operating in the, in the, in the Global South, but also uh, in their constituencies in, in the
1: West itself? That is a that is a really important question, actually. And the reason it's really important is because I've heard it a lot. I've heard Black Lives Matter mentioned a lot in the last two years or so. Um, and I think that it has woken up NGOs to or maybe maybe the humanitarian focused ones because as i say like i think a lot of these organizations are so big that they can often have that radicalism within them now but it's maybe compartmentalized but i think that that movement in particular actually has woken up even on this side of the atlantic you know where it doesn't have the same immediacy but was very very visible and and woke people up to questions you know which um you know the the toppling of statues in 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 britain for example over the last couple of years you know and, and the challenging of the kind of colonial legacy in, in that way i i agree with you felix i think that is one way which i think they're already thinking you know that this is one way where we can be kind of more radical and maybe more in tune with it, with a new generation and, and their approach to to this world i mean it's something which often comes out of Conversations I have with students, and I should say they were very important in in making this book because I've, I've taught these themes a lot, and I've learned a lot from my students. And, and often, what I hear from them is 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 as you suggest, more of a concern with those issues of uh, of justice. Actually, if we if we broadly group them under that heading and i think it is probably one way which they're already thinking about well, how do we make ourselves relevant to to a new generation which is more concerned with with those issues and that is inherently linked with that idea of decolonization and localization you know and and like i'll just give one example one very quick example which seems to me to link to that question and which i've heard come up because i've done a little bit of work with ngos on somalia recently and that's a location where it's almost exclusively locals who work for aid agencies within Somalia for security reasons. But to me, that raises an absolutely fundamental question of what are we doing here if 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 we won't go in ourselves, but we will. And, and actually, I should say, my colleagues that I've spoke to in NGOs agree with this, and they're the ones who raised the question. But I think that is that is also related to this much, much bigger question of like, you know, um, who do we put in the front line here? You know, how do we actually create that solidarity if, you know, if if there's still a hierarchy embedded within who will act in certain contexts and who will act in certain situations? And I do think exactly that by, by linking up to those broader movements and those broader questions, learning from them. You know taking them back in and seeing well how do we actually look at our own practices how do we kind of reflect on them they're often very good at doing this i think as a sector and have been always um even in the period that i'm talking about but i think you're right i think questions like that are actually beginning now to slightly reinvigorate and and just lead them to to asking more questions of themselves and maybe if, if we Maybe call it holding up a mirror to themselves, you know, and 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 looking and saying, "Well, what are we doing in these locations?" And and this has really challenged us to think about, you know, the the embedded power inequalities within within the kind of relationships that we have. And I, I, I'm just really intrigued to see what happens next because I've heard so many conversations about localization. And I can see, I've seen all the different sides of it. I mean, it still seems to make a huge amount of sense to me. And I I think you're right. I think international donors may be the ones ultimately to force whatever agenda comes out of this, partly because they're the ones who have the money. So,
0: On that note, Kevin, thank you so much uh, for uh, spending this time with me and the New Books Network. We've discussed the NGO moment, the globalization of compassion from Biafra. To Live Aid, uh, out with Cambridge University Press, Human Rights Series. Thank you so much, Kevin.
1: That was brilliant. Thanks so much for having me, uh, Felix. And, and these were great questions. I've really enjoyed chatting about the book with you. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I think there's lots of challenges for the sector. But I hope this book is 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 read and and uh, and uh, talked about at least a little bit. And I hope it makes it helps in some way to reflect on some of those questions that you asked at the end.
0: I have no doubt it will. Take care. <laughs>
1: Brilliant. Thanks so much, Felix. That was great.